You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Melissa Nozell, and on behalf of the Religion and Inclusive Societies Program at the U.S. Institute of Peace, it is my pleasure to welcome you here today. USIP was founded in 1984 by Congress as an independent national institute dedicated to the proposition that peace is possible, practical, and essential for U.S. and global security. We pursue this vision of a world without violent conflict by working on the ground with local partners. We provide people, organizations, and governments with the tools, knowledge, and training to manage conflict so it doesn't become violent and resolve it when it does. USIP's oldest thematic program focuses on the role of religion in peace and conflict, harnessing the contributions of religious actors, practices, ideas, and institutions to promote inclusive societies and build sustainable peace. We do this through research and direct action like training and convening. We are so honored to host this conversation today on the intersection of religion, human rights, and peacebuilding with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. At USIP, we understand that human rights are an intrinsic part of sustainable peace. Human rights violations increase fragility and can be a contributing driver of violent conflict. Religious actors can have a critical role to play in both building peace and promoting human rights. Religious moral values and lessons are often intertwined with human rights principles and can help inform and advance international human rights norms in local contexts. Religious actors, including those formally trained and those who are not trained religious clerics, but motivated by their religious beliefs in their work, including women, men, and youth, are often on the front lines responding to local peace and conflict dynamics. They're often trusted members of their communities and can be voices of moral authority and serve as advocates for the rights of their community members. You will hear today from our distinguished speakers who will share from their experiences engaging with or as themselves religious actors in the promotion of human rights for sustainable peace. You will also hear about resources that are fostering the thoughtful engagement and contributions of religious actors to human rights and peace building, like the OHCHR's Faith for Rights Toolkit, which documents and demonstrates in practical ways the manifold roles of religious actors and factors in this space. I'm now honored to welcome my colleague at the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, Ibrahim Salama, Chief of the Human Rights Treaties Branch, to say a few words. Ibrahim, thank you for joining us today and for your partnership for this event. Thank you very much, Melissa, for this opportunity and for the partnership we are having into trying to introduce or rather to accelerate some really important shifts in um, dealing with religion in international relations, in development, in peace and in conflict, as you said. Um, the, the most impressive contrast in my view and all those who deal with the religious phenomena at large from different perspectives is how far it can be at the same time a power for construction and for peace and for reconciliation and how unfortunately in other contexts it can be the exact opposite 
uh, if one thing only, this says how, how powerful religion and faith traditions at large are and how important it is to engage with faith actors to unleash their positive potential and to allow them to be human rights defenders in their own right. Uh, USIP has, uh, has a very interesting tradition in two ways. First, in acting on the ground with different communities, in enabling them, and secondly, in, uh, uh, in doing this in a way which is interreligious in many cases. And I can testify from my own uh, experiences professionally to the ama amazing energy that is unleashed when people are talking from different faith traditions and, and identify what brings them together, what's most important and crucial for all of them. Uh, I, I feel that the program, today's program, and the variety <coughs> of experts who will uh, share with us their testimonies and their lessons learned is very important in three ways. Number one, in transcending what I may call the oral tradition into a documented methodology of engaging with and among faith leaders. The issue is not just good intentions. Good intentions uh, are useful to indicate uh, 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 actions that yet need to be taken. And, and the second shift, I believe, is the shift from sporadic events into really sustainable approach. And, and that's how we try to link the Faithful Rights Toolkit that will be presented today from different speakers to the peace building. Because as you said, Melissa, uh, very rightfully, uh, nobody can overemphasize uh, the link between peace and human rights and, and development. With these few words, I'm very happy to give you the floor back and to the moderators to run us through this uh, very interesting group of people who will share their thoughts. Over to you. Thank you, Ibrahim. So we hope that our conversation today will be interactive. It's an informal discussion together. Um, to that end, to those in the audience, I encourage you to participate by asking questions in the question box. Uh, you'll find it on the event page on usip.org below the event video. And uh, in uh, a later stage in our program today, we'll be uh, taking questions um, in, in just a little while um, from, from that discussion box. So please, we encourage you um, throughout the program to be entering questions and comments there. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that uh, uh, in our audience today, we have participants from our latest global campus course, uh, Religious Engagement in Peacebuilding, uh, that we launched recently with Search for Common Ground. This course um, is a resource that we hope will be useful to many of you at this intersection of religion, peacebuilding, and human rights. And uh, it's a resource that's available free of charge through usip.org, and we encourage you all to take a look um, and to participate. Um, now I will turn this over to Michael, uh, my co-moderator today, um, and he will introduce our first panelist. Michael, over to you. Thank you. Thanks a lot, uh, Melissa, and we're delighted to co-facilitate this uh, interactive peer-to-peer -peer learning discussion. And without further ado, let me introduce the first panelist, and obviously afterwards we will go into an interactive discussion, and as Melissa was saying, please also feel free to jump in and have any questions and comments through the chat function. So Mustafa Bitari, uh, he is uh, a former United Nations Human Rights Minority Fellow. So he himself uh, went through uh, this uh, fellowship program, which before COVID-19 hit, 
uh, was uh, happening in Geneva physically, and now it's uh, uh, in, in a slightly different shape. He's a Palestinian refugee who grew up in Yarmouk camp in Syria. Now he has been living uh, in the Netherlands and works as a program coordinator and workshop leader for various uh, civil society organizations, including the Spotlight Team International Art. And that's precisely what I wanted to uh, ask you the first question, uh, Mustafa. Uh, if you could please tell us uh, about your work with refugees, notably from religious minorities, and also how you in your work use music and other arts for their storytelling and also in general for addressing what they went through. Hi, hi. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for this opportunity. And uh, are you hearing me well? Yeah, cool. Uh, first of all, thank you all for this opportunity. And actually, we are working with the most disadvantaged group here uh, in Europe, to be frank, uh, and most of them uh, religious minority. So we are working in the Zilzukar Centrum or in the camps. We are working outside the camps through the art. We are collecting the people between each other to uh, meet, to break the stereotype, to see each other, to talk with each other. Actually, we are building the real peace between these people through the art. So uh, there is many steps that you have to take in these procedures, but also there is many efforts uh, paying, by the, two, paying by, by the two parties inside this community. All of them uh, like, like these kind of procedures because through the art, you are talking with the human inside inside the human and they are breaking everything in the mind through these uh, shows or music or uh, or projects so as simple as this but uh, to be frank uh, we we hope most of us use the art for real building the peace because it's I, figure, I think it's the easiest way to 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 let the people talk with each other yeah thank you and what you just mentioned in terms of letting the people talk with each other, this is a fundamental part of the peer-to-peer -peer learning where everyone is really equal and has uh, lots to contribute and to learn from each other. And also the other feature is uh, storytelling. So where really people share their experiences, good experiences, but also bad experiences. And um, you have prepared a short video, uh, which we will show now which illustrates precisely your work with these refugees in the Netherlands. So please, if I can add something in the video. In this video, there is seven projects uh, with many organizations. One of them, Vrolika, the other one, Catching Culture Orchestra and Spotlight. These projects, it's, uh, for example, Sufi Blue. It's an artistic platform to let the people be with each other and do music and dance with each other. There is an Ali Enigma house or Ali Star house. This uh, house for the teenager or early teenager uh, suicide in the Azil Zucker Centrum here in Netherlands. And we built this uh, house for him uh, for music and dance and meditation. There is also um, uh, music and HR we made last year in the pandemic. Uh, there is the name of this video is Two Shadows. So 
Yeah, this is the most this is the most important project inside the, the, the video and I hope you will enjoy it. Thanks a lot, Mustafa, and you uh, increased even more our curiosity. So let's show the short video over to, to uh, our colleagues.
Many thanks, Mustafa. And I think it's really powerful to see also the way you use and to weave into your work um, with these uh, various backgrounds of, of the um, refugees, uh, also to, to really facilitate healing. And let me just uh, give you a brief um, follow-up question, also uh, picking up something that uh, the participants already uh, sent through the chat. Um, uh, referring to also uh, people from different religions who have created social initi initiatives. And um, I was wondering also if um, the different backgrounds of these refugees, if, if that um, facilitated or if at times it also created frictions and problems and tensions. So if you can quickly respond to that question. Uh, to be frank, I can answer yes, <laughs> it is. And there's also differences between the people and our mission or our our team uh, try the best to facilitate these differences. We, we are calling these things differences, not challenging. So yes, there is. we are solving all of these issues, by the way, through because through the the arts you can you can solve it simply you can yeah thanks a lot for this uh, honest but also positive um, answer let me pass back to melissa for the second uh, panelist thank you michael and mustafa thank you for your for your important work and for sharing um, this really powerful video with us um, I'd now like to turn to Nosi. Um, she's the coordinator of the capacity building, capacity building program in OHCHR's Human Rights Treaties branch. Nosi, I want to ask you how and in what ways do the UN treaty body system, the group of bodies mandated to monitor the international human rights treaties, help to prevent conflicts? And how can human rights advocates, activists, and religious actors use the system? Uh, thank you, Melissa, and thank you for the question. And uh, I'm very pleased um, to take part in today's conversation. So thank you very much for the invitation. Um, maybe I can add a bit um, to what you said in your introductory remarks on the importance of um, human rights in conflict prevention. And we've seen uh, in the video shown, er uh, shown earlier, and also through that history, and also in what's happening uh, right now in many countries, that um, uh, violations uh, of human rights really are the source of um, most conflicts and cri crisis, I'd say. And uh, it could be inequalities, um, power imbalance, um, imbalances within a society, um, a group that is marginalized, um, social unity um, that is threatened by direct discrimination, uh, exclusion, repression, or intimidation of minority, minorities, you name it. So uh, I think it's obvious that um, the protection and promotion of um, human rights um, should be a critical component of all uh, uh, efforts of uh, conflict prevention. And we've seen in processes like um, uh, constitution, uh, redrafting, but also in uh, truth and reconciliation processes that um, human rights uh, are very much at the base of um, or at the heart of this initiative. So sometimes it would be adding um, new chapters on human rights um, in the constitution or seeking justice and, and also holding accountable those that have committed um, human rights violations. 
So um, coming from the branch of um, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights that um, um, deals with the human rights treaties, and then you mentioned uh, the bodies that, uh, that monitor their implementation, we're very much um, aware of the role uh, that the system plays or can play or can to contribute to, um, um, to uh, conflict prevention and to uh, uh, sustaining peace. So if I may recall um, very briefly that a UN human rights system is actually, was actually designed um, to address um, the issues that I mentioned earlier on and, uh, and other ones, um, these issues that lead to conflict and crisis, um, and uh, this was after the, the world wars. Um, so for that reason, um, that system, the human rights um, um, system, but in, uh, including the treaty bodies, play a crucial preventative role. And it is at the disposal of states um, and the international community in general, but also um, uh, at the disposal of um, other actors like civil society organizations, um, human rights advocates and, uh, and, uh, and activists. So on one hand, it has this uh, body of uh, international norms and, uh, and standards that uh, help frame and uh, can help legitimize grievances, for instance. So when a group sees that uh, what is done to them is a violation of right, that is protected by international law, it legitimizes their claims and grievances. And then next to that, you have um, the, the system, the various bodies that provide um, avenues for bringing these claims. So the human, as I say, the human rights system, including the, the system are only uh, tools at the disposal of actors. So they would not solve a crisis. Uh, they will not uh, on their own prevent uh, conflicts, but I think they are um, crucial tools. So uh, going back to your question, how the, do they prevent conflict? First, the system, uh, including the, the treaty bodies, they are the only parts of the UN, the United Nations, that consistently and regularly assess countries on their uh, human rights record and including with regard to the key factors that drive um, conflict and crisis, uh, physical protection, legal protection, uh, political participation, um, civic space, um, cultural participation, uh, inclusiveness, and so on and so forth. So um, as the scrutiny is based on um, legal commitments that states have um, freely enter entered into when they ratified the treaties, um, I think the scrutiny has a very solid basis for engaging on, uh, engaging or challenging, uh, or engaging on the difficult um, human rights concerns without uh, challenging national ownership or sovereignty, because very often um, those would be the, the response to states when you look into um, their human rights situation. So um, I'd say uh, a fewer than uh, 20 states that are member of the United Nations have not ratified uh, either uh, either international covenants on human rights, that is the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. So that means uh, more than 170 countries have ratified these two covenants that provide legal protection um, against discrimination on grounds like um, race or religion or language. Um, the, these two covenants also provide um, 
legal recognition and protection of rights um, to freedom of religion or belief, uh, protection of the rights of minorities, uh, of the right or the, of the right uh, to cultural participation. So these states are subject to an international and independent scrutiny by the two bodies monitoring the, the two international covenants. So, and in addition to that, we know that all states are parties or have ratified at least two human rights treaties. And most have actually ratified most treaties. So uh, there's just really this whole scrutiny system that is in place and that can have a preventative impact. Um, let's say a treaty like the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination can be used uh, to address discrimination against person whose religion identity uh, has been um, rationalized, uh, for, for instance. So the other treaties also uh, that cover, for instance, uh, specific groups like the Convention on the Elimination of, uh, of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women or, so the, or, or also the Convention on the Protection of um, uh, the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, they do protect, pro, pro, provide protection of the fundamental freedoms of these people, so thoughts, opinion, religion, and belief, so on. So uh, on your other question as to how um, human rights advocates, activists uh, can use the system. Uh, the scrutiny exercise that I described by treaty bodies uh, is actually a participative exercise. Um, civil society organizations, uh, national human rights institutions, academics even, have used it uh, regularly uh, to present information on the human rights situation, including uh, when uh, such situation may, uh, may, may lead or may escalate into conflict. Um, and then uh, for, I know that for several years now, um, the religious actors are grouped that um, the Office of the High Commissioners has specifically sought to mobilize um, to engage with the UN human rights mechanism or the treaty bodies. So in addition to uh, uh, bringing uh, the human rights concerns to uh, the attention of the bodies, activists and advocates could uh, also suggest specific recommendations. Um, and as an example, in this case, I could say, for instance, that the rights of uh, rights or entitlements of um, asylum seekers and refugees are example of a common or recurrent features of these um, of recommendations coming from several uh, treaty bodies, um, the Human Rights Committee, uh, the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, uh, um, the Committee Against Torture and so on and so forth. So, and there are measures in place um, to reduce um, uh, the risk of reprisals, for instance, by um, allowing the submission of, um, of information on a confidential basis. And um, apart from this, um, uh, regular periodic scrutiny. Uh, treaty bodies also have other procedures that have um, very specific prevention uh, purposes. So for instance, the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination has an uh, early warning procedure that aims um, to prevent uh, existing um, human rights um, situation to, um, to escalate, to is preventing, to uh, situation to escalate into conflicts. So really the subject of uh, today's discussion. And that same committee has also a procedure that it's called um, urgent action that um, um, seeks to respond to um, problems or uh, situations that require immediate attention um, to prevent or limit 
the, the scale of um, um, the human rights violations. So um, these two procedures that I just described, um, the early warning procedure and the urgent actions are almost exclusively for the human uh, for the use of uh, human rights advocates and activists and who can reach to the committee to the to denounce um, the situations and for the committee to ask the state to act upon them um, maybe uh, I, I would um, um, end saying that it sometimes um, it's difficult to show um, the result of this work or more generally uh, of any uh, preventive prevention works because we know that prevention succeeded when nothing happened. So um, I hope I've answered um, your, your questions, uh, Melissa. Thank you, Nosy, very much so. Um, I appreciate your thoughtful response there. One follow-up question. Um, the Faithful, Faith for Rights Toolkit um, is an excellent tool and resource, and I'm wondering um, if you can explain a little bit more about how that tool um, and, and perhaps other tools that exist out there um, can contribute to prevention efforts, and how, how is that, that resource used? Okay, thank you. Um, uh, first, I think the toolkit um, helps, uh, I think, uh, develop um, a, a good understanding of the relevant um, international norms and standards um, uh, relevant to, um, let's say, uh, religion. And um, the interpretation of these norms are often presented um, in documents that are not um, easily understandable. Uh, for the lay person, and, uh, and sometimes they are even difficult for us who work on human rights to uh, to read and understand. And these interpretative uh, documents or the interpretative um, uh, explanations are often found in multiple documents. So a tool like um, the Faithful Rights unpacks um, these norms that are found in multiple treaties and put them in one place, and they uh, and it, it, it that the toolkit unpicks. Uh, the connection between uh, religion, beliefs, and human rights in a clear and actionable way. So, in this sense, I think the, the toolkit is um, is groundbreaking. It's a tool that we don't have um, yet on uh, other subjects, on on other issues, for instance, like um, uh, business, uh, business, and uh, and human rights, uh, or uh, let's say uh, the the health that uh, is covered by several uh, treaties. And that knowledge that you can acquire through this, um, uh, the use of this toolkit can be used by human rights activists and advocates uh, to prepare submissions um, to the treaty bodies and to help um, hold states accountable uh, to their treaties, um, treaties obligations. And second, um, I think it's uh, uh, in the office, we um, repeat this very often and then the program of the offices is based on this. It is crucial at, that create at the national level among the population an understanding of human rights to raise awareness and to ensure that it exists um, effective remedies and channels for res uh, resolving disputes and so on. And the, and the toolkit or the um, general the Faith for Rights framework and the toolkit are part of that um, part of the efforts that uh, to create that understanding and uh, awareness at the national level. And of, of course, religious actors are part of, um, in that sense, part of a national system of protection of human rights. And um, 
And I'd like to repeat the message by the High Commissioner for Human Rights, but also I think uh, Ibrahim Salam also mentioned this, um, impressing up, uh, upon the importance of uh, national dialogues on human rights issues, uh, of national um, ownership of solutions, addressing uh, the human rights concerns and uh, the national uh, expertise on those matters. Um, there's only so much that uh, uh, treaty bodies uh, that meet a few times um, a year in Geneva can uh, bring about changes uh, on the ground. Um, any change needs action taken by uh, uh, actors at the national level. So uh, with that in mind, uh, what we're planning to do. So uh, uh, coordinating uh, OHCHR's uh, global capacity building program on the human rights treaties uh, with activities in close or yeah, maybe 100 countries, we're aware that um, we can use this reach um, to provide a greater platform for disseminating the, the Faith for Rights um, Toolkit. Uh, and then maybe also make this uh, initiative more sustainable. So uh, in the uh, short term, uh, that is next year, maybe in a, uh, for six, nine months, we, we plan to develop um, an e-learning version of the toolkit. And uh, the objective is to take advantage of the possibilities offered by online courses um, in terms of accessibility and scalability. And we'll be working with uh, academic institutions um, and hopefully uh, with the US, uh, US Institute for Peace to do that. And uh, this goes in line with um, commitment number 18 of the Faith for Rights Framework to use um, uh, technology um, in order to, uh, to, uh, to, to use technology uh, for capacity building and outreach purposes so that we make the, the, the Faith for Rights um, toolkit available for use at the national level. And then um, obviously we'll build on partnerships uh, with um, academic institutions that have been uh, developed since um, uh, the beginning of this um, uh, Faith for Rights framework, um, the partnership that the, were developed under the, the commit, uh, commitment number 17 of um, the framework. So we're very much keen to explore an interest in, develop in developing a partnership in this regard. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nusi. Um, you know, I've been so impressed um, by the Faith for Rights Toolkit, and it's really a, a fantastic resource to build the capacity of religious actors um, to be engaging very directly in the protection of human rights. Um, and I'm looking forward to, to uh, hearing how um, the tool will evolve and um, how it will be engaged more in the digital space. Um, and I'll just note that um, there is a link to the toolkit, to the Faith for Rights Toolkit, um, through the USIP event page. Um, so those of you who are tuning in um, and watching, you'll be able to find that link directly on our, our web page there. Um, with that, I'll turn it back to Michael, who will introduce our next speaker. Thank you. Many thanks, Melissa. And also just to mention that um, the Faith for Rights framework and toolkit is also um, embedded and, and mentioned in the most recent USIP online course. So in that sense, it's, it's all basically in sync and, and uh, cross-referencing. Um, we have uh, talked a lot and, and, and emphasized the role of religious leaders and faith-based actors. So our third speaker, um, who is Dr. Munir El-Kaderi-Butshish, um, will, will be able to also uh, bring in this perspective directly. 
He is the president of the Foundation Al-Multaka uh, in Morocco and director of the International Sufi Forum. So um, I will ask him a question and due to technical uh, issues, uh, he had to pre-record his answer. So the question uh, that I asked him is, what are the sources of conflict between and within religions? First of all, allow me to thank Mr. Ibrahim Salama, as well as the United Nations High Commission for Human Rights for their kind invitation. We must remember that wars and conflicts are a constant in history. Conflict is human phenomenon caused by economic and political ideologies that want to expand and dominate others. Violence and combat dominates people's minds, wars, struggles, games of informal or state alliances highlight the limits of human organizations which too often seek violence as privileged mode of conflict resolution. On the opposite, the spiritual message of religions in general and Islam in particular is to call for peace. We can read in the Holy Quran, however, takes alike unless as a punishment for murder or uh, mischief and the land it will be as it they killed all of humanity. Islam and Sufism, which is its spiritual dimension, teach us how to find inner peace at the individual level and to find peace on the outside. This journey for peace starts by leading the great flight against our ego, the Grand Jihad, because it is one of the main source of conflict within ourselves, as the Prophet said. Today, it is very important to say that our interpretation of religion must be guided by peace, mercy, unity, and living together. Religion must be a factor of sharing peaceful coexistence, discovering others and appeasement. In a hadith, the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, God, the compassionate, one has mercy on those who are merciful. If you show mercy to those who are on the earth, he who is in heaven will show mercy to you. The, the central objective of Islam and the Sufism is to pacify social relations with ethic and the moral code of conduct guided by respect for one's neighbors, whatever he religious or cultural affiliation. For the great Sufi master Ibn Arabi, peace and mercy are central universal values when he said, encompassed by mercy and gentleness, 
all animals and all creatures do not deprive anyone who asks for help even by a good word even by a good word finally i must say that the practice of sufism hoses the station of excellence in islam in arabic is an antidote against conflicts it helps us create bridge between people and societies today it is necessary to create such platforms of dialogue to create links between different faiths. Let me finish by thanking you for your efforts in this direction. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh. Thank you, Dr. Munir, for, for this thoughtful intervention. I'll now turn it over to Knox Thames. Um, Knox is a senior visiting expert on the religion and inclusive societies in the Middle East and North Africa teams at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Um, he's also a senior fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. Knox, I'd like to ask you, in what ways are religious actors well positioned to advocate for human rights? Um, and given uh, your wide experience in this space, where have you seen some uh, examples in uh, maybe some specific context? And I'll say we're seeing some questions come into this effect. So uh, I'm wondering if you might uh, speak to, to some examples. Thank you. Great. Well, it's great to be here and to be speaking uh, to this a wonderful issue and uh, salute the great work of our colleagues at the High Commission for Human Rights in Geneva for focusing on how faith actors can also be rights advocates. And in my work over the past couple of decades, focusing on religious freedom internationally and issues of protecting religious minorities, I think the, the missing link has been religious leaders, faith communities to advocate for the other. Um, we've seen uh, progress made with, with more governments coming into the, the work of promoting uh, freedom of religion or belief for everyone everywhere. We're seeing parliamentarians from different uh, political philosophies, different religious backgrounds, different regional uh, re regions of the world joining this cause to promote freedom of thought, conscience, religion, or belief. And NGOs, the advocate, advocate community has been there, of course, for a long time. Uh, in touch with the persecuted, bringing that information to policymakers. And so the next step, it needs to be bringing religious actors, religious leaders into this work, uh, focused on uh, protecting the inherent dignity of everyone to pursue truth as their conscience leads. And, and why are they important? Well, they have a, such a strong moral voice. They are community leaders. They can speak uh, to their societies in ways that that certainly international actors can't, that um, in fact, elected leaders, government officials are often very attuned to the views of religious leaders and are looking for them for guidance. How far can they go to lead their society forward to create more civic space for diversity of thought? So there've been, there's been progress made in this. Uh, it's sort of at one step in setting the framework. So you go back uh, for, the, for Catholicism with Vatican II, that, that transformed the position of the Roman Catholic Church to being an advocate for religious freedom. More recently, we've seen, thanks to the leadership of Sheikh Abdullah bin Baya and the Marrakesh Declaration, talking about, in an Islamic majority context, the right of non-Muslim minorities to be treated as equal citizens. And then just two years ago, the really remarkable event in the UAE where the Pope 
and the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar came together to issue the document of human fraternity, talking about how um, the, these two great faiths have a common shared view of the inherent dignity of the individual, which includes freedom of conscience. Um, so that's sort of setting the framework. Those are been positive steps. And now I have experienced uh, sort of the second part of where faith actors have set an example, where they've been that advocate on the ground. I remember when I was working at the State Department, uh, I visited Sri Lanka, uh, and I was in the capital, Colombo, and I had, was meeting with um, Muslim leaders and evangelical Christian leaders at the main mosque in downtown Colombo, and it was a they were both experiencing problems. And what was so remarkable, both each community leader took time advocating for the other. So the, the Muslim leaders were saying, we've got a lot of problems, but these Christian minorities, they, they, you should help them. They really need your help. And the Christian leaders were saying, no, 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 no. Yes, we've got some problems, but the Muslims are really being targeted for you know, attacks and violence. You should help them first. And, and I thought that was such a great example of communities uh, from different backgrounds who would have deep theological disagreements coming together around the idea of human dignity, of the inherent um, uh, rights of every individual to pursue truth. Um, I've seen that in other places with Muslims protecting churches, Christians advocating for atheists, uh, Hindus advocating for Muslims and Christians. And these are, are the, the positive steps that we need to see more of. And I think this is where the Faith for Rights toolkit this faith rights movement that uh, Ibrahim and Michael have been so uh, such leaders in is, is, is exciting and is needed um, because here you're starting to sort of translate these dry technical UN documents into um, tools that faith leaders on the ground in situations of instability, uh, human rights abuses, they actually can use them. They can take what's been established at a global level and apply it to a community level. Um, and, and if we can get that growing, if we can see those roots really go down deep into the soil, then we're really going to be getting into a new phase of human rights advocacy where, where I like to say there are four legs to an advocacy stool, governments, parliamentarians, NGOs, and religious leaders. So we can get the religious community fully engaged, then I think it'll be a benefit to so many suffering people around the world. Thanks, Knox, and thanks for some of those really um, powerful examples. Um, I wanted to uh, flip the question a little bit and ask you, um, so uh, from the Religion Inclusive Societies team's perspective and a lot of the research that we've been doing over the years, um, we know that it's important to be careful in engaging religious actors. And there are sometimes situations where it might be less effective to bring in religious actors or to engage them in, in very particular ways and perhaps not in others. And so I'm wondering if um, you might uh, reflect on if if you if you agree, in fact, in what situations um, might it be less effective perhaps to engage religious actors in this space? Well, I think at one level, we need to be mindful that governments don't try to manipulate religion to achieve some sort of political goal in the temporal, to use the spiritual to achieve something in the temporal. Um, and we know throughout human history in every region of the world and every community, that temptation is there. Um, everything from the 30 years war in Europe to the challenges we see in the Middle East today to the sort of the, the flashpoints in Africa that religion is a powerful a powerful motivator for incredible acts of charity 
and kindness and, and seeking justice. But we also know that it can be misused and abused and be a justification for acts of violence and hate. Um, so it's incumbent that those who are working on human rights issues, either from the governmental side or civil society side, are, are, are consistent in saying, we're advocating for the right for everybody. That's not to say communities shouldn't advocate for their own. We want communities to advocate for their own. That's a very natural thing to do, but it's in a context of enjoying the right for all. Um, while being mindful that there are gonna be negative actors that want to twist things to achieve a political goal um, that is detrimental to the cause. And I think this is where this idea of creating civic space, of protecting an environment in every society where people can debate ideas and philosophies and theology without fear of harm or imprisonment or persecution, that that actually is gonna help a community find that equilibrium where Different when the new ideas come in, they can be debated, they can be accepted, they can be rejected, but no one has to, no one can resort to violence to try to settle an argument that's otherwise spiritual. Um, and that's hard though, because we've seen in, in a lot of contexts where there's weak rule of law, there's uh, failed or failing states, those, those protections aren't there. And then you see the loudest usually most extreme voices coming to the top because they're willing to use violence to, to promote their ideology. Um, and that's where we get a lot of the, the growth of extremist violence and, and extreme human rights abuses. So it's creating that civic space so that there's freedom of uh, debate and thought and exchange of ideas, uh, setting firm rules of the road and being mindful of how people try to misuse religion to advance uh, other goals. Picking up your point, Knox, about creating this uh, vital civic space and, and then freedom of expression and freedom of religion or belief. Uh, let me also introduce uh, one of the questions that just came in through the chat. So thanks a lot for that question. And I'm reading it and perhaps I will uh, address it also to, to Ibrahim because he has been uh, working on, on, on this um, for uh, years. So the question is, I'm trying to visualize what the toolkit might look like in a practical sense. Could you provide an example of what this actually looks like? And what would be a sample statement or a question? And if I just may add, um, what are your experiences in piloting this over the past two years uh, in the COVID-19 context? Thank you. Thank you, Michael, for this very important question. I think the main difference between the toolkit on faithful rights and what I may call the traditional ways of approaching religion is that religion is usually top-down. It's predominantly about submission to something higher. And it's very uh, rarely about debating these fundamental issues. So allowing or introducing critical thinking into the religious sphere is one of the main innovations here, which is done very uh, respectfully. As Melissa said, at times one has to be very careful about approaching religious issues, not to offend people or have a counter uh, effect by involving them in the wrong way. So in a very respectful way, the toolkit provides uh, methodologies and models and examples uh, of exercises that faith actors <coughs> are uh, uh, recommended to use 
into their own uh, engagement within their own communities and particularly on an interfaith basis. Uh, it's, it's really hard to ask uh, uh, religious actors to stop preaching, but it's not far from that. It's transcending preaching into reflecting together. And I think the whole idea of religion, it's, it's a deep conviction, but at the same time, it's a conviction which does not deny reasoning and which does not preclude others' uh, rights to believe in different things. So if you really have, an, and Max mentioned this very, uh, with a very concrete example, I think the main test of a genuine faith is the moment when you defend people who believe in other faith traditions with the same vigor. Uh, rather than defending yourself. It's at this point in time when I personally feel that that this faith speaks to me personally, whatever this, this faith is. So to come back specifically to the question, we take any issue of attention between different uh, faith traditions or between them and human rights, uh, abortion, uh, uh, speech that might incite to violence, uh, excommunication, judging others' uh, uh, theologies, or, or religious thoughts in a manner that might lead to discrimination against them. And we take these <coughs> misgivings or misactions or manipulations of religions, and we try to provide exercises in the form of unpacking, in the form of storytelling, in the form of case studies, to discuss it from different perspectives, without a pre-conceived uh, conclusions, without the right and wrong at the beginning, but people reach it at the very end. I don't know if this transmits it or not, but to link this question, Michael, to another question about the uh, availability and, and, and in different languages, we are working on the toolkit. It's now in, in numerous languages, uh, maybe four or five, Michael will correct me, but we are working on soon launching uh, the French and the Arabic version for the um, the participant who asked why there's no Arabic, it takes much more time to bring all these nuances into the Arabic languages, but, but we are working on it and, and this will come. But the main shift is critical thinking. The main shift is nobody is higher than the other. The main shift is nothing should be taken for granted, even in the name of belief. You have the right to, 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 to put aside your mind, if you so wish anybody, and believe in something. But others uh, are entitled to question it. And you should be able to engage with them. And, and my, my personal experience is that it's amazingly empowering to uh, allow uh, faith actors from different traditions to address thematic issues from different perspectives without a preconceived or an imposed or a top-down prediction on what uh, should be the final solution. It's this intellectual suspense about what is the most rational way to deal with these issues. And you will find that at the end, uh, almost all faith traditions have a very valid angle that adds value to the understanding of any social issue. It's difficult to transmit this. You need to try the toolkit in terms of engagement. And, 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 and that's why um, uh, the whole exercise of peer-to-peer -peer learning is, is based on mutual um, um, literacy that is needed between the, 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 the faith camp, if I dare to put it this way, and the rights camp. Again, if I link it very quickly to the question from a colleague in Bulgaria uh, about, about why is culture not used? I think it's another fundamental question, very much related to the question on the toolkit. Why, why is the toolkit conceived in such a dynamic way? Because you have three terms of reference or three, three channels of communication, of engagement, of prevention, and of resolution of conflicts. You have the law, 
you have faith at large, including religion, and then you have culture. The problem is that at the multilateral level, there are silos most of the time. And one of the main aims of the toolkit is to break these silos and to create a horizontal link between culture, faith, and law. Law is too boring uh, unless it really factors uh, those uh, to which it's supposed to be applicable. Uh, lawyers need to realize the limits of law and appreciate the richness of culture and the power of faith. Over to you. Many thanks. And uh, as you rightly mentioned, uh, law is not everything and uh, really needs to be complemented uh, through other forms of, of communication and their art and what Mustafa was, was uh, showing and also spirituality, uh, what Dr. Sidi Munir um, explained um, is important. Let me pick up uh, quickly one question again coming from the chat box um, addressed to Knox. Thank you for sharing those comments and capturing those examples is important and has been a point of conversation. Do you know anyone trying to track those data points? And I think that's uh, really a fundamental point. So over to you, Knox. There are a few sources that I've relied upon, um, but none as specific as probably you're looking for. And I think that's a space where we can always have better data, more precise data. Uh, but and I'm a bit biased here, but the State Department International Religious Freedom Reports always have a section that looks at societal actors, the good and the bad, so not just the, the practice of governments. Um, it covers every country in the world except the United States. The United States has its own reports from our Department of Justice that does similar activities. Um, but those reports are very comprehensive. They rely on firsthand information that have been gathered from U.S. embassies. So that's a good source of information. Secondly, the Pew Research Forum has been doing really innovative work to bring together different data points to analyze the state of, of government or societal hostility towards religion um, in, in every region and country of the world. And there's about a two-year lag on their findings, but they're still very uh, influential. And and they, and, they, and they seem right that they continue to find very high levels of hostility towards the free practice of faith by governments and or societal actors in every region of the world. Um, it's the last statistic, if I recall correctly, almost three out of every four people live in a country with very narrow lanes of permissible religious activity. Now, that doesn't mean three out of four people are being persecuted, but rather if if those individuals step outside of those established frameworks, either by government or society, they're going to immediately feel a backlash or a negative reaction from uh, authorities, from their neighbors, or both. Um, and that's become a real foundational document for the people doing human rights work focused on religious freedom. So I would commend those two reports to you, but also flag for you and others listening that there's, there's a lot more room to do more study here uh, and additional data would be appreciated. Thanks, Knox. Um, I have another question uh, that's come in here that I would like to direct to Mustafa. Um, this question, I'll read it uh, from the top. This is awesome. This sounds like an interfaith approach, encouraging people to see the commonalities and primarily to celebrate our common humanity. I really like the critical thinking part of the toolkit, but isn't religion about faith and not thinking? Mustafa, would you uh, respond to this question? 
could you please just raise your voice a bit just uh, give me the question because yes yes uh, so the the bottom line of, of the question is uh isn't religion about faith and not thinking and i'm wondering if you can talk about this in, in from the perspective of your work i'm not hearing you i'm sorry i'm not hearing you so just to paraphrase the, the question, please repeat and yeah. just to paraphrase the question, um, because the, the, the comment was uh, appreciating the critical thinking part, mm -hmm. um, but then wondering if religion is not about faith and not about, uh, it's more about faith rather than critical thinking or thinking in the first place. So in your work, for example, um, with the refugees, does this uh, okay. Okay. come up? Okay, <laughs> okay, it's 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 a very good question. Uh, to be frank, yes, it's 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 not about religion. It's about the thinking and the way of thinking of, of these targeted groups. Let's say, and you have many tools to to work with this thinking, or because it's coming with the culture also. It's it's not just coming with with the religious uh, thing, uh, religious uh, habit or uh, uh, coming with 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 real there is real differences between all of these groups and you have to be uh, really clever how to solve it and how to enter to it uh, but uh, simply you can and uh, just you have to believe that i can and you have to see which tools that you have to use uh, in front of these differences and then uh, you will be very good to solve it I see Ibrahim has raised his hand. Over to on, you. On, on the same question, Michael, uh, uh, I think it's a general perception and also a general practice that faith is associated with basically submission. And this is one of the main sources of tensions between human rights and religion. Religion is generally taken to be a submission, so you don't discuss, you just take it, you believe or you don't believe. Uh, otherwise, you are blasphemous if you start thinking too much. On the other hand, human rights doesn't accept anything without scrutiny. Hence, the animosity between the two spheres. So introducing and intersecting uh, the critical thinking into the religious spheres only meant to say, who said religion is only about submission? I mean, faith can only be deepened if you think about it. If you don't think about it, it's superficial. It can go away. It can be brushed by doubts, either by people or by circumstances or by misfortunes of life. So, and, and there is a huge heritage of uh, faith traditions, which is amazingly uh, um, meeting together, intersecting, uh, converging on these facts. But this is not the most visible side of the story of religion. The most visible side is people who are impressively respectful and you hardly talk to them and you take from them and you run away and you repeat uh, the best you can. It's not only about that. There is also another side. And I'm, I'm, I'm very much like what Dr. Munir Qadiri Bucic mentioned, uh, because I think it, it, it shows the, the missing horizontal link, to paraphrase you, Knox, about the missing links. Here is a missing, missing horizontal link between compliance, because if you work on your inner resistance, on your own uh, ego first, you control the, the, the deepest sources of tension at the origin. 
before they become two egos fighting. And each one of them haven't even sorted out his own ego or her own ego in advance. So religion adds something. You cannot reach this by just faith. You need to reflect. You need research about the um, dots that need to be linked between the three disciplines, law, faith, and culture. Over to you, Michael. <clears throat> Great, thank you. Um, and uh, I've seen some questions come up uh, about uh, if there will be a, a manuscript or transcript available of this event. Um, and I'd just like to mention that this event is has been recorded, is being recorded, and um, it will be available through the same uh, website, uh, the event page on usip.org, from which you're able to watch the event today on YouTube. Um, we'll also be linking uh, the recording to uh, the Faith for Rights Toolkit, um, as well as to USIP's Global Campus course on religious engagement and peace building. So it's, we hope, will be also a resource that, uh, that you all can uh, turn back to uh, as you'd like. Um, I'll also mention um, our hope to continue collaborating in this space and um, welcome opportunities um, to engage at this, uh, this really important intersection and hope that this is only the start of a bigger, um, important engagement here and uh, look forward to engaging many of you in the audience uh, as part of uh, some of those conversations as well. Um, I'd also like to mention again um, that the, the Faith for Rights Toolkit is available online. I know there have been um, some more questions about how to access it. It is linked um, in the event page on usip.org. I think it's been um, added to the chat there as well in the Q&A chat. Um, and in addition, um, you can find it simply online by, by Googling uh, Faith for Rights with number four toolkit um, and OHCHR, and it should come up there as well. Um, and of course, it's linked also through our global campus site. Um, we've had a couple questions uh, come up uh, about uh, uh, engaging with uh, religious minorities and specifically some of the, the contexts um, where um, the rights of minorities um, have been violated. And um, I, I want to um, ask if maybe Nosi, you would like to comment on um, on the dynamics around the Uyghurs um, in China and, um, and and kind of that, that situation and um, how, you, how you'd respond there. Um, thank you, Melissa. Um, I think there was a question asking about the um, peace building and the section of uh, religions and uh, the discrimination against Uyghurs. Uh, so, I, and then uh, another question say, um, what can the UN do to ensure that this minority has rights? So, just to say, I think that question already a response because it says that uh, we cannot talk about um, peace when there is discrimination. So it's just, uh, um, you reverse it and then you have um, the answer. We can ensure peace is only when um, we address discrimination. And I can also um, say that um, minorities have rights. So that's, um, that's guaranteed. And the question is whether they can um, exercise the rights. And sometimes they, um, they, 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 they provide the, the uh, let's say the environment to exercise their rights. Um, what the UN um, does, I think um, the UN to start is, is um, uh, at the very basis, uh, it's an intergovernmental um, entity. So states among themselves have addressed uh, the issues of minorities through resolutions uh, of um, the, the UN Council, but also through uh, the UN uh, human rights mechanisms. Um, 
at um, if you're if you're familiar with it at the, let's say the the human rights council but also uh, the issues of minority are dealt with regularly by uh, the treaty bodies that i've mentioned in my presentation thank you Great, thank you, Nosi. Um, I'll now turn to Knox. Um, Knox, if uh, you'd like to offer a closing reflection and um, perhaps uh, take into account some of the additional questions we're receiving um, kind of more generally about, um, about religious minorities and, um, and the protection of those who are persecuted. Over to you, Knox, thank you. Well, thank you. And I think the questions about the situation of Christians or Uyghur Muslims and others really gets to the point of this conversation. Like how do we bring religious actors into the work of advocating for the persecuted? And you know, in the context of China, there's, there's really no space internally for religious actors to petition their government to end their abusive practices. But this is where faith actors in other countries can motivate their own governments to take actions, to speak up, to speak out where faith actors can engage their elected leaders, where faith actors can challenge other communities to join them in coalitions to speaking up and speaking out. And I think that's the part where the sort of uh, cross-pollination can be so important, where you see communities that have deep theological difference, differences agreeing on the inherent dignity of the individual, understanding the international human rights standards that have been established through the UN and other regional bodies, and then finding ways to add their voice, to, to, to bring their credibility, to bring their, their moral standing and their moral suasion into these arguments. Um, as I said earlier, that's sort of the missing link. That's the part that uh, the four-legged stool, that's the, that's the wobbliest. Um, and I would also tie it back to, you know, about a few weeks ago, we celebrated the 40th anniversary of the 1981 UN Declaration Against Discrimination Based on Religion or Belief. Um, and I would commend a great article that Michael and Heiner Bielefeld wrote on the, on the history of that drafting process. But I think what it shows is there's been a sort of a series of uh, evolution of growing standards. Um, and now the standards are set and we're in this new phase, this sort of next phase of, okay, how do we push these standards forward? How do we get everyone involved in advocating for a freedom of religion or belief, freedom of expression, the rights of the individual? And so this is why I think this Faith to Rights initiative is so important, it's so needed, and it's filling a, a gap that uh, needs to be filled. So thank you very much, and I appreciate the conversation we've had today. Many thanks, Knox. And uh, just picking up very quickly a question about the translations, and just to confirm that uh, the 18 commitments on Faith for Rights, they are already available in 11 languages. And by next March, we plan to have, and that was the question, the toolkit also available in Arabic, French, English, and Spanish. And now I would like to hand over to Ibrahim for the closing remarks. Just two quick remarks, both emanating from, from the, the chat box. First, the colleague from, from Bulgaria who ended his or her question uh, wondering why there isn't enough emphasis by the United Nations on intercultural studies. I can only agree with him. And again, my explanation is the silos, and that's why we try to design the Faithful Rights Toolkit to become uh, one of the examples that can be built on in this, uh, in this uh, directions. Uh, <clears throat> 
My second closing reflection is the importance of art. And here, I'll, I'll be quoting Mustafa. And actually, uh, seeing is believing, as, as people say. And you can disagree on ideas. But on the same ideas, you can never disagree on the beauty that you feel when these ideas are expressed, even if you disagree with them. So art unites. And, and hence, uh, one of the main dimensions of the Faithful Rights Framework is to use art for faith for rights. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.